Clap once if you can hear me. Clap twice if you can hear me. So, listeners, we are going to call on you. What movies in the back-to-school vein would you like to listen to and talk about? Any movies from Ferris Bueller to Mean Girls to one of our very favorite movies, High School Musical. Please let us know any of the school-related movies you'd like to talk about. You can let us know on Instagram or Facebook or email us directly at goodfilmhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Hello, and welcome to Good Film Hunting, the podcast where two sisters living in different parts of the country talk with friends and family about some of their favorite movies from the past and from today. So, we have a very special guest and a very special movie that I like legitimately... Um, was with a friend this afternoon, and I was like, I get to go home and talk about this movie. Yes. Very excited. So, and then I started quoting it and rolling mm-hmm. with the homies. So, classic. Yeah. Rolling with the homies already giving us a sneak peek about what's to come. <laughs> but, I mean, I couldn't hold back. Our <laughs> guest today is Stefania Margitu, who I met in grad school at USC School of Cinematic Arts um, for Cinema and Media Studies. And, now we have Stefania is getting her doctorate and is like pretty badass and baller in terms Woo-hoo-hoo. of culture and feminism and television. But Stefania, so tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, what you're studying, why you're studying it. Um, yeah, so I originally got my master's in film studies and I wanted to do more television stuff because I was just interested in the like historical feminist roots in television studies and um, both like the historical and contemporary aspect. Like at the time I was taking my um, my film courses, everyone was talking about TV and not just new TV, but old TV. And what I was really interested in was showrunners because I realized in TV I cared a lot about who was running the show, um, as in who was the creator, if that's, um, you know, whether it was the star, like when I was obsessed with 30 Rock, if it was Tina Fey and Girls was just coming out at the time. But I realized it was something I wanted to know about in past authorship too. Like, it was Lucille Ball, the showrunner of I Love Lucy. In what ways was Mary Tyler Moore um, had her authorship on the show, even if it wasn't, she wasn't the sort of creative head. So even how actors and other kinds of, um, from producers to uh, costume designers to music supervisors, and Clueless is actually one of the few films I wrote about, but um, the book chapter I wrote about it is actually a refocusing on Amy Heckerling, so that's the Clueless director, Mm -hmm. also famous for doing Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, yep. It's also a pretty big gap between the two movies in terms of time. Yeah, her directing career is sparse, and if you notice, that's pretty common for women directors. Um, for she, sure. And um, and uh, uh, I think with Amy Heckerling, she did a lot of things that people didn't notice, and she wasn't being, like, her authorship wasn't being appreciated. And for me, you know, people talk about Clueless, oh, that's so 90s, that's so of its time. Obviously, we were kids when we were watching it, and it's something, uh, if you look at what the costume designer, Mona May, they 
They got, you know, this huge costume designer who was working in high fashion to come and bring high fashion to this world, but also add that element of what what are kids actually wearing and what is accessible. And the music, even if there's music like Coolio rolling with the homies, or you have the Cranberries mentioned, you have so many contemporary mentions. There's actually a lot of covers of old songs, um, uh, like the All the Young Dudes song. That's, you know, so there's a lot of influence from the 70s because what was super interesting to me was that 90s era, it was grunge. Everything was grunge. So everything was like the Britney Murphy character across both genders, like dress-wise, interest-wise. So it was sort of this like re-feminization through the 70s because that was the last time that it was the sort of empowering feminist. You know, 80s was all about sort of the consumerist valley girl. So Mm. although, you know, it's tongue-in-cheek, there's this sort of satire obviously just like and I'm interested because I know Annie's such a big um Jane Austen fan like the, the connections you know about the sort of authorship and one of my favorite scholars uh Shelley Cobb did a whole thing about Jane Austen adaptations mm. and film and you know it's like the different layers of authorship and adaptations like you know, maintaining the original if you want to keep it a period piece, but it's all you're mm-hmm. always going to add elements of the contemporary. Like the 90s, Emma was very 90s the way they dressed. An 80s, you know, Pride and Prejudice looks very 80s still with the big hair and the costume. So it's still even costume designing is adjusting to the times. Uh, and yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's kind of like a social, it's, you know, social mores of, of, of the upper class, but, you know, in the end, you know, it's kind of like, that's, you know, part of it is when women are sort of in these confined spaces and these, you know, confined roles, how can they be empowered through them? And I think that's totally. something like Jane Austen did and her characters did, and I think it's something, it's what we see in Coolest because... And the the coming of age story aspect of it is that she realizes there's more than that. Right, for sure. Well, kind of jumping off um, everything you've been talking about, especially about the feminism of the 70s and and then, you know, different movements um, in years later, even in terms of fashion, um, I'm going to jump into pop, draw, blah, jump into <laughs> pop culture moment of the week because oh, yes. mine connects to that. And um, I actually just saw it. Like, I just got back from the movie theater. And I saw the RBG uh, <gasps> I documentary. I can't yes, wait. It was really good. And truthfully, like, so this might sound crazy, but every time she's on screen, because they, like, show um, clips of her working out, I'm just like... I wanted to cry just like watching yeah. her work out. I was like, she's so amazing. Yeah. Um, but also, um, and I really am glad that that the movie um, kind of brought this so much to the forefront. Is she she was able to be who she was because she had a really loving and supportive partner. Yeah. And I learned a lot about her husband as well. And like their relationship is just so beautiful. I like left the theater and I'm like, dang, Ruth and Marty, you just like raised the bar. Yeah. Like now I don't know what to do with myself. Who's the, who's my man who's going to help me become the best in my field because he knows I can be. You yeah. Oh, uh, gosh. Well, what a love story. If you consider that like 
of the time too. Like that's so Absolutely. cool. Oh, for sure. He sounds like the most amazing man, truthfully. So cool. Yeah. Um, in the age of stay-at-home dads and potential paternity leaves. Um not in this country as much, but <laughs> like we're trying. Yes. Um, we're trying. But yeah, I think that was part of it reminds me of, you know, it reminds me of Hillary. I think Hillary wanted to do her own thing and Bill was just a charmer and she finally said yes, but she was very career driven and I think she sort of gave in and fell in love, but she had to take that. Oh, even even Michelle Obama, right? She was his mm-hmm. she was his boss, yeah. Well, and she had an incredible job at University of Chicago Medical Center before his election, his campaign took off. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Annie, one of one of my college roommates, Colleen Walters' dad, worked under her. Chicago. Oh, but represent. I thought that was Obama. I thought that was Michelle Obama. Yes. Oh, yeah. We jumped to them. Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my brain. I was like, I don't understand, Annie. <laughs> Um, For some reason, I thought you were talking about Hillary, and I was like, she wasn't in healthcare. Like, she wasn't at all involved in healthcare. But anyway, I do love Michelle. But I think as that, well as Ruth. I think anyone who's in government in that way. I think women who are pol- like more visible politicians, like running for a big office, have to have like more of a family image, you know. But a lot of times, like the lower key senators or other things, you have this assumption that yeah, that they're single, yeah. So amazing. I mean, it was even even if you look at our California senator, Senator Kamala Harris, uh-huh. she has stepchildren but she didn't get married until she was like far advanced in her career realistically i think i'm not sure how old she currently is but i don't think she got married or truly romantically involved seriously until she was almost past childbearing years like to the point where like Mm. she would no longer be questioned about it yeah um oh yeah yeah and oh but anyway, okay, so... You can't, get, you can't get women. asked that in a job, but if you're a politician, a public figure, you can get asked all those questions about motherhood if you're a public figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I still feel even now jobs find subtle ways to, like, subtle, just, like, oh, yeah. under-the-radar ways to ask. Um, and following, like, pay gap throughout the United States right now, too. Mm-hmm. It's interesting the states that have now outlawed asking previous salary because that only hurts women. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's interesting to see all of this coming to a head. But, Stefania, what was your yes. favorite pop culture moment? Um, do you remember the name? It's it's He only posts, the Instagram only posts the, the um, Prince George uh, scheming. Oh. Um, is it Jerry Gelanti or something like that? I think like that's that? what it is because I'm off of the gram, but I get texts or like screenshots all the time. From yes, people. yes. That is Eleanor, your life. Oh, yeah. yes. And so it's, let me, yeah, Gary Janetti. And it, they're all, I mean, you see these memes all the time, but it's kind of like one of the like sassier, hilarious photos of uh, George. And of course, this this time it was like, um, you know how you can scroll, you can have multiple photos. So this time it was a headline. Um, George and the other one, what's her name? The other Charlotte. One. Charlotte, yeah. George and Charlotte have starring roles in Royal Wedding and the, the, um, 
the subheading or the the quote is I'm planning a little something with a friend. I hope it doesn't steal focus. And it's all him and Beyonce next to each other doing the same exact moves. Oh my goodness. And Love. just so like the two biggest scene stealers or event stealers of our time. It, it it's true. So, so true to its time. It was a tough week I for mean, me, so I needed Ivy. Oh, yeah. Blue Ivy kind of stole the show from Beyonce, mm-hmm. though. So, when? I mean, when at an awards show, she, like, yeah. literally told her parents to hush. It was Calm amazing. Down. How have you not seen that meme, Eleanor? It's amazing. Has it been on Instagram like, or Facebook? Well, it's that so would great be the because, reason. like, Beyonce and Jay-Z are both, like, and she just turns to them and she's like, stop. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I'm trying to listen, crazies. <laughs> yeah. Respect the artists. Like, it was probably Rihanna, yeah. and they were getting into and it. And she's, like, yeah. the only person in the world who can, like, do that because it's Beyonce and Jay-Z. Like, if I tried to do that, yeah. I would look like an idiot. But Blue Ivy just gives this, like, great side eye, and it's just like, shut it, parents. You're embarrassing me. Yeah. It, oh, gosh. It speaks to the precociousness. If you remember, remember yes. the, the Katie, um, what was Katie Holmes' daughter's name? The, that Surrey. Oh, Surrey's Surrey Burn, Burn Book. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I miss it. Uh, mm. um, and, well, just one more little California as I see your GRE book in the back. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> so, the very... It's so exciting. Stanford, amazing. But to be, you know, like California, everything, everything I think in academia and in big cities in in California is so everyone's a transplant or, you know, everyone's and that's what's so great is the melting pot. But you forget about SoCal culture sometimes because you don't know as many, you know, you don't know as many people, you know, the transplants. So I think that was part of it. Sometimes I love sort of the history of Clueless and knowing that it was filmed at Occidental College, you know, the mm-hmm. small liberal arts oh. college, also the first school that Obama attended his first year. Um, so just these little tidbits about the sort of California uh, lifestyle and how it would be and how everything was so spaced out in terms of shooting. It wasn't filmed in Beverly Hills practically, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Blackish fan, there's a scene where one Love of it. one of the I think it's the eldest son is dating somebody and they use uh the clueless house as his girlfriend's house. Really? Yeah. What? Yeah. Whoa. So even there they reuse certain things all the time, but unfortunately it's a gated house, so you can't kind of like go take a picture a tw- do the tourism but the quad is just the same as it was and I think the quad is such an important part of like image that of that school where they're walking down the quad Mm -hmm. what's next did you okay so so we're definitely talking about clueless can you give us a synopsis of the movie for anyone who might not have seen it for whatever reason yes whatever Um, foolish reason I want okay. First, give me a synopsis of Emma because this part gets this part gets I think lost, and I think it's it's an important part of it. The yeah, sort so of, I defer to you. Yeah. Okay. So in Emma, there's this girl Emma who is very wealthy and she's very entitled and she's kind of a snob. 
like she's not actually very nice to people. Um, and her, she's an older sister who just got married and has a child and her new brother-in-law is this man named Mr. Knightley. So it's her sister's husband's brother. Mm -hmm. Um, and anyway, so she lives alone with her father because her mother has died and then she, like, adopts this girl who's not very smart and not very pretty and new. And she's like, I'm going to make you, like, the belle of the ball. This is what I'm going to do in my free time. So she's kind of playing with her life and her romance. Mm -hmm. um, things go awry. But in the end, um, that girl ends up happily married to who she should be married to. And Emma ends up happily married to Mr. Knightley, who she, who she is supposed to end up with. Yeah. And who is her brother-in-law. But, like, not really. Like, her sister married his brother. So it's not incestuous. It's just... No. It's close. just brothers marrying sisters. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which, who knows? So, brother-in-law is not the right term, but I didn't know how else to say it. <laughs> right. Because it was... Yeah. Yeah. So, in Clueless, you have, in contrast... I mean, the the, the core of it, I think, is so universal and so speaks to both the universality and universality like from Emma to the 90s to now. So Cher, right, Alicia Silverstone, another fan fun fact, they wanted Alicia Silverstone to play the uh, head role of my so-called life. They wanted her to oh. be the star, and she was 18 at the time, had just turned 18, and that way she didn't have to have the sort of child labor laws. But, at you know, she had just starred in these Aerosmith music videos. She was sort of already, <laughs> like, this teen sex pot. And Winnie Holzman, you know, who later did Wicked and, and all these other amazing mm -hmm. things, was wanted somebody who was a teen, you know, who was more that character. So they got Claire Danes, who was, like, 15 at the time. Um, Whoa. Yeah. And, but I think Alicia Silverstone was one of the only, uh, sort. she was still a teenager at the time. So Alicia Silverstone, Beverly Hills, kind of the queen of Beverly Hills High, lives alone with her father. Her mother died from a... a Routine liposuction. Yes. <laughs> surgery. That's like the line that I always remember. Yeah. So funny. And I didn't even know what that was, you know? Oh, was, I had no idea. In 1995, there are so many things that I don't know what they are. Just And now in L.A., like, liposuction and Botox is just everywhere. Every dermatologist, like, Groupon, it's just... And she has her... Instead of a sister, she's an only child, but she has a best friend played by Stacey Dash, who... The controversial Stacey Dash, who... It's just a shame. Um, who's basically married, you know, in this... Uh, plays the older sister kind of character. She's had been in the, her relationship for her longest time with Murray, um, Donald Faison of Scrubs fame, although I prefer him in Clueless, and they have this sort of they're always fighting, uh, and then they're always making up relationship, and then Brittany Murphy comes along from somewhere on the East Coast, uh, I can't, I can't pin the accent. You guys, you guys are better with the East Coast. I don't know <laughs> if they ever give it something specific, but yeah, it's almost like tr supposed to be trashy New York, New Jersey. I would assume. Yeah, yeah, Bridge and She's Tunnel. She's supposed to be from New Jersey. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because New Jersey is like I don't know slang for trash. 
It's yeah. like shorthand. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That sounds terrible. Sorry, Jersey. <laughs> well, the way they talk about the valley in the show, the San Fernando Valley, which, you know, back in 1995, everywhere it took 30 minutes, but it was not 30 minutes uh, these days. I mean, they talk about the valley as some, you know, kind of godforsaken place. Like, so, like the boonies, you know. But uh, it's where most people grew up. The Valley's nice, and it's where most people grew up. It's where most teen stars, like Studio City, North Hollywood, that area, it's kind of like the suburbs of the industry kids. So I think it's really funny that they elevate you know, shares wealth, you know, and, and it's, it's, you know, the kind of down, I think that's why people like Downton Abbey, because it reminds them of the social stuff, although way more incestuous, because they're aristocrats, right, and they have so to marry. So they're only marry. allowed to marry. Wait, okay, question, can we, sorry, we're doing a great job of giving synopsis, but I need to, like, back up for, like, one hot second. Yes. What is Paul Rudd's character's relation to Cher? Stepbrother. Former stepbrother. Former stepbrother. So equally kind of in that, like, gray area. So it's kind of like that era of that L.A. and 90s. Everybody's getting divorced and multiple marriages. And he's in college, I think, at UCLA. And he comes and hangs out at the house. Uh, and Alicia so like... Alicia Silverstone's character is always like, Dad, like, he, we're not related to him anymore. Like, you're not even with his mom. And then I remember, again, like, one of the iconic lines. The iconic lines, the lines that stuck out to me are, like, very strange and apparently, like, are only no. from his, his her dad. It was just like. <laughs> Great actor. Like, like, you divorce wives, you don't divorce kids. Like, yes. that was his. Oh, yes. Which is kind of a nice sentiment in a weird way, you know? Definitely, because I don't think his, he's not close with his mom. You get that impression, and you get that she's a little nutty, and she's always calling to talk to him. Or maybe he's, like, a typical freshman who doesn't want to talk to his mom, but wants, like, free food. And he has a crush on Cher. Like, they obviously are have, have that sort of, like, teasing crush on each other phase. But, you know, he shows up in the flannel, so he is, like, the, she says, like, a nod to the crispy Seattle breeze or something. So he's, like, the the sort of woke bay of the movie, right? He... Right. He, Marky Mark's gonna plant a tree for his tree people society at UCLA. He has this pretentious sort of girlfriend, and they talk about Hamlet, and Cher knows the line better because it's from Mel Gibson. So all these things... <laughs> oh my gosh, I forgot that. <laughs> so it's all these things where she's presumed to be an idiot, but she's actually quite intelligent, but she uses it in in different, way, in different ways, in so, sort of like societal ways than like intellectually or academically. So Brittany Murphy arrives... Makeover, right? This sort of obsession with makeovers. It shares greatest purpose or only purpose in life. So they make over Brittany Murphy. Uh, cue the montage. Cue sort of everything you need to know to be like them. And it's part, of course, tongue-in-cheek, but part you, you start to love the characters. And uh, she wants to set her up with Elton, who is the worst. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> can I get my cranberry? Annoying. Yeah, and she's like Emma. I think I I think that's to me like the main connection. She sort of doesn't mm-hmm. want to be married. She has this whole thing like I don't date high school boys. I'm saving myself for 
uh, whoever played Jason Priestley or something. Someone from Beverly oh Hills 90210. Yes. And so it's that's also really rare because all the 80s gross-out guy movies were about, like, getting laid. And, you know, later on, too, were about, like, losing their virginity. So the fact that she's sort of saving herself and that she doesn't really, she's not in a rush or, you know, it's not a priority to her. She doesn't like high school guys. She has more important things to do. Mm. I remember it was, like, kind of a role a role model thing at the time, you know, and she does the matchmaking and, you know, sometimes it goes wrong, but it's her way of not dealing with her own love life. And it falls apart with Elton. Elton tries to get with her. And actually one of our friends, I mean, the references are so amazing. Like he hits on her in the car and she's really grossed out after the party at the Valley. And... Uh, and she goes, I'm having a Twin Peaks moment. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> because it's just so surreal and so weird. And uh, he drops her off at the famous, uh, that liquor store in L.A. in North Hollywood with the big uh, clown on it. And she gets robbed at gunpoint. Uh, which which is, is also funny to think about in North Hollywood. Which is so nice. It's such a nice place now. Yeah. Yeah. The only time I've really hung out there, I went to my, yeah, my boyfriend's co-worker's party and <laughs> one of the like, birthday party and it was just beautiful and their dog was one of the original dogs from Air Bud, one of the original Air what? Buds. Yeah. What? That's yeah. like the most LA story ever. Yeah. For sure. After I asked him to take a picture of me at the at the liquor store, the, the big clown liquor store. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and so the turning point is she... Um, well, there's several turning points, actually. You know, she actually starts to like, and I think this is a pivotal moment for, I mean, as many times as I've seen the movie, but it happened to me, too. She falls for the new guy at school who dresses well, who uh, mm. is into yes. really cool stuff, who has good hygiene, right? Unlike the other guys at the high school, and she's like... Oh, I'll give it up for him. He's sweet. We have the same interests. He's really in a fashion. And they fight, and she doesn't realize he's gay. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I honestly don't think the first time I saw this movie that I understood that his character was gay. No. And, you know, uh, Maury Donald Faison's character before the highway scene, which is how I felt like the first 50 times I went on the highway in L.A., uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's he uses all these references, right? He's like he's a share loving friend friend of Dorothy, right? Which implies he implies something like well, share is named after share, and then Dion is named after Dion Warwick, so it's not the share reference. But I definitely remember the the friend of Dorothy off the top of my head because Judy Garland as a as a oh. gay as a gay icon. Oh. I honestly didn't get that reference until this moment. Is friend of Dorothy something like the AA thing? Like, what is it? Tom's friend or something like that? Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. Oh, no idea. But he uses all this coded language and it shows their sort of precociousness. Like in the very beginning when you see him and he's like, woman, lend me $5. And she's like, don't call me woman. And then he just spouts this like, 
you know, although it carries misogynistic undertones, you know, I, Um. so everyone's just so clever and it's just, you know, has that Amy Heckerling wit imbued in it. So doesn't work out with him. Brittany Murphy has a near life. Brittany Murphy, RIP. Oh, yes. Has a near life. Uh, near-death experience at the mall. She becomes kind of the new popular girl, and Cher is uh, sort of flabbergasted. And I think there's a a turning point like that in Emma. Like, she's the new it girl. What? Because she has this, you know, she's just going to talk about this, and she's the center of attention, and she's almost Claire's, uh, Cher's carbon copy. Uh, And then I think... She starts to have a crush on Paul Rudd's character, Josh, and for some reason Cher is uncomfortable with that, and she's not sure why. So again, another beautiful montage, Celine Dion, All By Myself, which is, again, a cover of a classic song that's been done yeah. so many times. Shop Retail therapy, right? The fountains. <laughs> <laughs> I like Josh, right? That's her big... Uh, her big revelation. So the rest of the movie is how to deal with that. And because it's not the same as with other guys that she just wants to flirt with or have a casual thing with. And then Brittany Murphy ends up with a guy that she's supposed to end up with. What's his name? The skateboard guy. Oh, uh, Travis. Brec- Travis. I only know he's really Brecken Meyer and he's yes. like a tiny, he's like five foot nothing. Yes. Right. Garfield. The guy from Garfield. Yeah. For sure. He's totally happy to be the guy from Garfield. That's his line. (laughs) But he's sort of the California stoner, and he's okay, and they talk about the burnouts, which is a great thinking about it in terms of freaks and geeks, right? Because he was the freak. And Ridgemont Ridgemont High was all freaks. Oh, yes. Yeah. Burnouts equal freaks. It's the same thing, right? Stoners, deadheads, and it's sort of reestablished in the 90s with the tie-dye and then the grunge and except for Freaks and Geeks was like no no popular kids no beautiful kids I just watched this Freaks and Geeks documentary they didn't know that people would find James Franco attractive they thought he was gonna that's be. so funny and then that all is. the women were like or I think it was uh what's Judd Apatow's wife Leslie Mann Leslie Mann yeah she was like he's the kind of guy that would work at the newsstand and you would make out with like Oh my god! Because he was doing like the John Travolta burnout kind of thing, like bad boy. That's thing. true. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's closure. There's happily ever after. Josh and Cher end up together. But the larger picture is that actually her biggest attempt at matchmaking is more perfect than she thought. You know, she starts donating money to the Pismo Beach disaster relief. She wants to help her dad. She wants to read. You know, she gets into service. I know you guys know about that. Good Catholic girls. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, it's great at the very end. You see Josh and Cher kissing and then it's sort of a fade out. And you see a wedding and she goes, well, you know, famous repeated line as if this is like california not kentucky and it's her two like lonely teachers that get married uh yes 
And it's it's at that wedding at the end rather than you have that romantic closure, but they're in high school. They're not going to, you know, it's not going to be marriage. And all, you know, but, you know, there's romantic closure and they're all they're all together. But the larger picture is that was kind of her greatest D that she Mm -hmm. did. She was doing out of self-interest, but to get help her grades and help her teacher be less moody to give her better grades, her scheming. But then she sort of realizes along the way these morals and these greater good ideas. Well, I kind of love this. So this movie is so funny. Um, but I do love the self-actualization that the character Cher goes through. Yeah. Because by the end, she has this revelation. She's like, oh, I'm, like, really good at arguing. I should become a lawyer, <laughs> yes. you know? And it's like, I just, like, kind of love, and again, I'm coming off of just watching a movie about a woman fighting her way into the law field. But, um, like, that's important that, like, young women feel like they can argue and they can argue well and like stand up for what they believe in and all that good stuff. So while she's like, I mean, for most of this movie, she's like pretty terrible as Mm -hmm. just like in Emma, Emma's pretty terrible. Like at the end, she, I feel like she has a better idea of who she is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's a better idea for who she is. And I think what it does well is it establishes that parts of it were inspired by someone else. Like it inspired Uh by someone externally in this case, a man, but like, um, she does it for her, and he's like mm-hmm. an added benefit as opposed for to the primary benefit. Right, two hundred percent. It's not just the romantic element of it. It's not a romantic comedy from the beginning. Like you could sort of guess that they like each other, but that was never the biggest takeaway. Oh, Josh and Cher. I mean, Paul Rudd, like. Which is, it's crazy to think he's probably the most famous, successful, whatever, net worth person in that whole movie. And he was not as big of a deal back then. But it was almost no. from that part of it was the appetite, but he was, he's just so, even, well, it, and he actually because he Because what happened, yeah. okay, Alicia Silverstone, like, oh. went downhill, but then she also became really weird. Vegan. Well, she, she like, baby birded. She baby birds her child. I think um, the kid's, like, old now, Annie. I don't know if she still does it. Okay, but here's the thing. Can we talk about her for just, like, a hot second? Mm-hmm. And how wonderful she was in the 90s. Like, yes. this movie, yes. But Eleanor and I grew up watching um, another adaptation she did for Love's Labor Was Lost. Mm. And it is fabulous. No, it yeah. is a musical, and it involves the dude who plays Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. Ugh, I mean, Matthew like Lillard. too much. Okay, so, Stefania, I, ha- I have some questions that I w- about... <gasps> oh. Well, what do you see at, is the connection between Clueless the film and Clueless the television show? Because, to be honest, like, I know growing up with Annie, somehow Annie, I feel like, took control of a lot of our television watching. Don't you think Uh, that's true? control of a lot of our media because I also controlled the shared cell phone. (laughs) That's true. I don't know how I took that on, but I did. Annie and Teddy both had cell phones at, like, very early ages, and I, like, did not get one until much later. But, like, Annie was obsessed with Clueless, the television show. Yeah. So I, I almost know that I don't better. remember this. I was about to say, like, I've never seen that. No, so Annie, you I watched it. I don't know it, what you're talking about. You watched it 
all of the time. It was like, what the- is Clueless the television show? <laughs> oh my, Annie, because it it the Alicia Silverstone wasn't in it. No, but like I think the teachers were the yep. same actors. Stacey Dash was yep. in it, and I think the other, the really mean one with red hair, Ambular Amber was in it. Okay, for so sure. like I definitely mm-hmm. don't remember this show at all. I'm glad that you're <laughs> able to block it out because I'm <laughs> unable to. I'm sorry, but yeah, I don't remember it. There were three seasons, apparently. Yeah, we we know, like, Diagnosis Murder really well because Annie yes, was really into that it. That I remember. We, the only... <laughs> <laughs> she controlled it all. Yeah, Diagnosis Murder, I remember, would come on at, what, like, 8 p.m. And I'd make everyone, like, stop what they were doing and be like, we're watching this. <laughs> What's his name? <gasps> He's in Bye Bye Birdie. Dick Van Dyke. Oh, my gosh. Oh my Dick gosh. Van Dyke. I love uh. Dick. One of my celeb crushes. Same. I love him. I'm started. I'm watching the show right now. I'm rewatching it, and it's just so oh God, good. You know, okay, so this is like wildly off topic, but like reminded me of cute old men. Um, while at this ah. movie today, there was a trailer for the um, Mr. Rogers documentary, and oh man, oh. the trailer made me cry. Won't you be my the trailer name? made me cry. Oh yeah, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I used to wear a red cardigan all the time in in, uh, high school because it was like an old cardigan that's still, I don't know, I just loved it. It was like a cute red cardigan and it went with a lot. And somebody like my PE teacher or something was like, oh, the Mr. Rogers, you're wearing the Mr. Rogers cardigan. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess he wears a red cardigan. And is it true? Like this, like that story, he wears it because he used to be this like tough, militant was he in the arm like mercenary guy and they were all tattoos covering his arms that's why he never took off his cardigan i feel like i read recently that that's um not true yeah like a urban Urban. legend yeah but i'm not sure well it's either it was an article that confirmed it or an article that said it was fake news and to be Mm -hmm. honest i can't remember which yeah so it was not an effective article but early um, example of sort of gym teacher knowledge, drop-in knowledge. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the TV show. Connection to the TV show. I mean... Or should it? Should there be no connection? Mm-hmm. Is it do Like, what yeah. was the reasoning behind making it in the first place? You know, the movie was so successful. It was a sleeper hit. It was low budget. Nobody thought they were... Female, you know, it's like the same as it ever was. Nobody thought they were female audiences. Nobody thought they were youth audiences. And so they tried to do it with a TV show. So it's just kind of, even Gidget, right? Gidget was a movie first and they made it to a TV show. And I think the story as a standalone is so perfect and had such a beginning, middle, and end that trying to do an equivalent of a spinoff almost, but... Mm-hmm. I don't even know, or is it a, I don't even know enough about it. I don't even know if it's a prequel, because I don't, Josh isn't no, in it. It's kind of mm-hmm. contemporaneous, almost, from what I remember. But is it meant it, to pick up where they left off? Well, they're just still in high school. Right. And it's more just like the everyday quibbles. It didn't really seem to have a vision for what it would be beyond, like, a single season. No, and I think it had either one or two, and I remember not liking it, and not it not feeling the same, and not looking the same, 
And I think it's just, you know, part of like the reboots, remakes, sequels, prequels nature of of mm-hmm. of media of something successful. Let's try to do another version. And there's actually a line in Girls where um, the first episode of Girls, which is no Clueless, but it mentions Clueless, and the guy gives this the, the sort of Elton. The, the guy, to me, now looks exactly like Elton, and the girls are talking about their lives, and he's sort of like... This reminds me. This reminds me of of Clueless. I feel like I'm in Clueless right now. The way you guys are talking, and then the sort of bimbo girl goes, "TV show or the movie?" Yeah. <laughs> well, so I'm looking at oh like some of the stills from the TV show that I can't remember, but it is kind of cool that mm-hmm. at this time, I mean, it seems like the main characters were two African American men, one African American woman, and yeah. two white girls. Like that's pretty diverse for the '90s. I mean, as soon as, you know, WB, UPN, as far when as they teen, merged, you know, yeah. I mean, in the 90s, there were a great diversity of, you know, black, you know, Moesha True. was like the teen yep. show and sister, girlfriends, sister, sister, girlfriends, Rob Rock Akil, Tracy Ellis Ross, and it was all on the UPN, WB. I mean, the Jamie Foxx show, the Wayne Brothers, so many people had their start on it and then they realized actually like Dawson's Creek and a lot of those shows Buffy was more cultish but it was still popular so TV was still sort of in this because CW and WB and UPN were networks but sort of these weird like not the big networks but still had to like half and half um so actually, there's this great documentary called Beyond Clueless, and in my chapter, we interviewed the filmmaker of this movie, and it's just a montage of all the coming-of-age scenes and all the movies that were able to be made after Clueless, all of the niche, weird 90s teen movies that I think helped. They weren't... I, I mean... I'm trying to think of the big ones. So there were some hits, mm. right? Like, say, The Last Dance, She's All That. Yes. Which, you know, um, music and culture at the time, Bring It On, and then you have Mean Girls, and that sort of makes you think of Heathers. But there were so many of those, like, mid-range 90s movies of the time. The Craft, um, just so many kind of weird movies that would be TV shows now and are probably trying to get remade as TV shows now because TV wouldn't really do it. So we're talking like 95, right? So My So-Called Life gets canceled 94 to 95 because it doesn't have enough ratings, but it has a cult Mm. following. The first TV show to have an online Save This Show, 99 Freaks and Geeks gets canceled. And, you know... Dawson's Creek was a soap opera. I mean, they spoke precociously, but it was, you know, a bunch of white kids meant to be in, Mm -hmm. you know, it was very Manila, vanilla, um, kind of teen soap opera-y. And there, you know, there were some interesting elements of it, obviously with the music, and obviously everyone in that show have had interesting careers afterwards white michelle williams Mm. probably being sort of the most acclaimed joshua jackson i think is great in the affair and anything he does but i'm just team pacey but i actually had a it's also like 
I wonder if there were kids who had only seen Clueless, the TV show, that weren't allowed to go to the movies or weren't allowed to see the VHS. Mm. Because I, or even like, or because it came later. Because I had a student this semester and she was so smart, but she's 18. And she told me she had never seen Sex and the City until this semester, but she had seen The Carrie Diaries, which was the CW prequel. That's so weird to think about. Yeah, and it's because her mom was like, oh, it's the girl from Bridge to Terabithia, and it's on the CW, you can watch it. But obviously you're not going to let a third, whatever, however old she was at the time, preteen, early teen, watch Sex and the City, nor would I would think she liked it. And she didn't, and she didn't like it. Right. Mm. She, oh. But it's just these, it's like the references don't, Everything happens so everything happens so much and so fast that like newer generation especially now. Oh my gosh. That the like pastiche it's like everything is something else. It's true. So so I think that's actually a really good transition to talking about like mm. the legacy of this specific film. Like and you you've spoken through through this entire podcast about where you see this show this film having value, but how do you see the legacy playing out in the future or like around what age and in what context would you introduce young viewers, both girls and boys to this film? Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because guys actually like Clueless too. And I don't know about younger boys, but I remember having like when Netflix first came out, uh, and co- coming home from college from going out and we were trying to figure out a movie to watch and the and my friend's boyfriend kept taking off her movies and they're like and one of his friends was like bro why'd you leave clueless on there and he was like cuz it's funny cuz it's a good That's movie great. you know it's not and it's it is funny and it wasn't you know i mean chick flicks are this whole other thing but i mean i watched it when it first came out so second and third grade but you don't realize how how much like goes over your head. Even in Friends, there's so much that went over my head when oh, I was watching for Friends. Oh, sure. And so it's interesting to see. I mean, a show that has lived on for me like in so many different ways, and watching it in retrospect and getting so many of the references I didn't. And it's it's interesting. Like, why did I? Why did young people like it at the time? And I think, to me, everything at the time, you know. And this was before like Limited Two and the big Claire's thing. I mean, everything was so grunge, nineties, male dominated, and it sort of boosted this era of feminine pop culture and female focused pop culture and. Um, pop, you know, and I think, you know, all the boy bands came after that, the the teen, you know, the Britney Spears and stuff like that. I mean, it was right on the cusp, right? Kurt Cobain died 94, 95, and then that whole, um, I just saw a conference call about 97 being this huge mm. year, and there were a lot of turning points. So it's not good or bad, you know, you know, grunge isn't bad and whatever clueless pop teeny bopper culture isn't good but it's just how things it's just how things come and go I think the way the cultures come and go and the way that trends um appear and reappear but with clueless kids liked it and 
their parents thought it was funny too. Mm. So that was also really rare. And their parents were able to relate to parts of it that reminded them of the 70s, like the fashion, like the plaid, or like the tie-dye stuff and the burnouts, or the Ridgemont High kind of universality, or the Emma um, universality of it. And I think that's what a lot of shows that are this very, like, critically acclaimed teen shows or critically acclaimed more youth-centered shows right from Freaks and Geeks to like a 80s period piece but still relevant to its time to Veronica Mars to Riverdale to anything that sort of has this retro nostalgia I think it's because it's cool for the cool kids to know now about the past and to sort of read mm-hmm. Stranger Things, right? All my students in, in, in college love Stranger Things. And that's, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And that's, that you know, this obsession with the 90s is, you know, I always ask my Only students. Only growing. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, but the clothes are more fitted though now because the clothes were so baggy, right? So and baggy. I mean, cl- no one looked good. And part of it was in Clueless, they were form-fitting, right? And they they were good, and they mentioned um, brand-name brand designers, but they also had these little elements like a choker, you know, like how cheap is a choker from Claire's or a plastic uh, handbag. So I think it was this sort of element of, of uh, aspirational, but also relating to it. And because now the way you see the 90s fashion, people think it was like, and this was a lot rarer. It was like a floral dress and uh, combat boots, which was like really uncommon, or at least it wasn't like a flattering floral floral dress right it was a sort of like what you think of like a mom one so now it's like been established so I think clueless combined that like feminized and and then it was later appropriated to be this combination of feminized and masculinized and you know then you know came Buffy and Buffy Buffy was I'm blonde and I'm pretty but I don't care about being popular, I need to slay vampires, and, you know, all of the metaphors and, you know, cult followings of of Buffy, so I think it just started a wave of, not quality, I hate the word quality, but maybe thoughtful teen TV, that it it doesn't just have to be what is going to happen in this plot or are they going to get together or something you can make it thoughtful and you can make it important and coming of age stories in literature have been so important and i think the invention of the teenager was you know has been you know in terms of consumerism is fairly new so i think 20th century wise people are still sort of understanding that you could sort of appeal to these teenage girls right like the tween market now Mm -hmm. is huge and that blew up you know a couple years after or the teen market of doing of of doing things and um teens as agents and I think it gives it allows teens to have even if they're precocious and that's what is usually done like a sort of more mature teen right played by an older actor and smarter or in some way you know but that's also part of the aspirational element and 
that the clothes now, when you look at it, they aren't mm-hmm. they aren't dated like in TV show like in a lot of TV shows. They actually are what people are still want to wear now. So oh, especially now that the whole style is so mm-hmm. popular. So the timeliness of the fashion, the slang that keeps getting picked up, which Amy Heckerling researched, the Valley Girl slang meets the Surfer Girl slang meets meets whatever contemporary slang like Baldwin, right? Coming from the Baldwin brothers. Um, but elements of, like, California surf culture and her sort of observational stuff going to high school and the soundtrack. I mean, you're in 90s songs, you're rolling with the homies, which is just a, f- <laughs> so a funny. fun song. But then a lot of these songs that have been covered and redone and so... It's that you can do this sort of interesting, different coming-of-age story, but you can add these elements of the culture in it that's fashion and slang and music and whatever else you want to do. Politics. Um, Like, slightly mentioning there's no RSVP on the Statue of Liberty, right? (laughs) I mean, I... Um, or that kids can be precocious, like a like a Seth like a Seth Cohen, or you know, like every character now is sort of like a hyper, super smart, media literate kid, and can mm. can understand these things. I think, to me, that's the legacy. I mean, what do you what do y'all think? <laughs> no, I <laughs> that so was many a of the points you brought. <laughs> So much of the so much of the points you brought up, I think, are so well taken, and it is this idea. I the precocious precociousness element I think in particular. So we have these characters who are just so valuable and uh, role models in unexpected ways, mm-hmm. and still being cool. Like yeah. that's also part of the element too. Is that continually being cool? And I see this. I remember when the Iggy Azalea video for Fancy yeah. came out. My my I was teaching middle school at the time and. <gasps> Though they didn't understand the reference point, they all enjoyed mm-hmm, yeah. it. Um, so I think that's what's so valuable about this. But Annie, how about you? Um, again, I like I just work with so many younger kids. I can't yeah. imagine them watching this movie. Like it's just not appropriate for ten and eleven year olds. Um, wow. But I think for high schoolers today, they would enjoy it. I think that it's. Yeah. It's fun. It's funny. You can identify with the main character because even though she's ridiculous, like she she speaks some truth into like what it's like to be a teenage girl and to be crushing on someone and to, you know, be sitting in class daydreaming and just like all those things that are so much a part of of that age. Um you you yeah, you can really identify with. So yeah, I think that there is a legacy. I think it's um I think it's and I don't think it would pass the Bechdel test for sure, but <laughs> there is a young female lead at the center, and I think that that those movies are always important. Well, and it it's the beginning of this strong female friendship that we see come about. Yeah, um, that's the so central. That's yeah, and that being the central point of it, rather than mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. And the Bechdel test, I never thought of it because I use teen shows; they have to have. It's such a rigged romance. It's such a rigged um, plot that you have to find other ways to squeeze in being subversive. <laughs> For sure. 
through a big Ugh. satire song in cheek. But I wonder if it's because with your kids, if they're 10 or 11, if it's too much for them because they can access. Because you could just Google it and get the Urban Dictionary version. Or you could... Which is how I operate everything. Yeah. Same. <laughs> I'm a 10-year-old. Everything was just word of mouth, like you could maybe hear from your friend's older sister what it meant, but you had really no idea of, of knowing, so that accessibility, and that they're more precocious at 10 and 11, but uh, mm-hmm. when I taught film, a lot of the students wanted to write about Clueless for its visual design, and because they were interested in costume design too, and that made me happy, and I think they got it, they got what it was it was about, and... Yeah, you, the Iggy Azalea thing, too, obviously. And so yeah, many. No, it's, it's, it is too fun. And I'm so excited, and I think we will definitely have to have you on when we do possibly, like, a contemporary teen film. I would yeah. Like, for the for next sure. time you're on, I would love to discuss um, possibly even, like, Love, Simon, which I thought was oh, charming. Oh, yeah. Um, um, but so f- um, we like to end our podcast by thinking like like our good girl share thinking <laughs> outward. And if you could go anywhere in the world in this moment, where would you go and why? Oh, I also wanted to mention that there is a Love Simon product placement in Riverdale where all of that's that's good synergy. All of the B characters, while the A characters are at a cabin, the B sort of queer characters go to the movies because they have nothing else to do, and they sort of find each other there, like the Lonely Hearts Club. So even if, like, as an adult you don't appreciate it, um, it's it's valuable for teens, right? Because it relates to them, and it's a coming of age, and you can relate to. But you're much better at. It's so cute. At a pre- I, both of you are much better at appreciating youth, children's teen media, tween media. Um, <laughs> oh, it's true. I'm like essentially a twelve year old. And I'm, I'm just around a lot of twelve year old girls. <laughs> yeah, one of the two. I'm I'm yeah forever something. I I don't know what. <laughs> Um, any, forever you. anywhere in the world I could be, Ugh. for, for, well, like, this, this, you, can you guys go first? I know, I mean, I know I've heard other people say it before, but now I feel like, I don't know. No, that's fair. No, I get um, it. Um, I think if I could go anywhere in the world right now, it would be to, like, Tahiti, to, like, mm. a, uh, it's like the end of the school year and I'm just like always tired. Like there's not a time yeah. I'm not tired. So like I just want to get like one of those little cabins you see on the beach and like sleep for a few yeah. days. And then come back to the real world. Your semester's not done yet. When are you done? I'm done. So I'm like. We don't get out until the students leave June 8th and then we leave Ugh. June 12th. So a little bit longer. Almost there. Mm. Yeah, almost there. For me, I'm also feeling, like, weird level of exhaustion that I can't really place. Yeah. And so I, too, would like to go to <laughs> a beach and drink, like, coconut. So, like, I'd go back to Thailand just to, like, because that was the first place I had coconut on the mm. beach. So in my mind, that's the only place I can have coconut on the beach, which I know Proper. is not true. For sure. But, alas, alas. How about you, Stefania? Okay, you know what? A- another thing, one other thing. You don't see the other parents, really, but I think one other thing that you see in Emma and you see in Clueless that she really cares for her parents 
And later on, I mean, in a lot of network shows, it's like father knows best if parents are always right. And you only sort of later see that parents aren't aren't perfect or families aren't perfect. But, you know, I turned 30 and um, it, you know, I'm thinking about when I was such a brat when I was a preteen and a teen and um, I and like. Now I just have this because I spend my I, as a as a kid I spent my summers with my my grandparents and parents in Romania and when I was a kid I loved it when I was a teen I started to hate it or started to be a brat about it because I wanted to be with my friends and I didn't have you know whatever oh, yeah. and now it's just like who else is cooler to hang out with than your parents I think sort of getting mm-hmm. over that phase and I had a professor who. You know, the way that kids kids are starting to want to be a little bit separate from their kids, right, the, the quicker they grow up. They're, you know, so my professor mm-hmm. was saying she doesn't want to hug me anymore. Everything is I don't care. And mine was, I forgot what my, like, go-to saying was, I don't know, like, sure, or, you know, just one of those oh, ambiguous, yeah. like, uh, term. Non-responsive. Non-responsive. And we were talking about the moments in our lives we realized how awful, you know, how bratty we were and mm-hmm. sort of making up for it. So as, as I'm like adult, you know, adulting 30, I'm, I'm looking and writing a book on teen TV. I'm thinking about the second coming, coming of age for when you're adulting in that way. Because our generation gets to have several levels of adulting. <laughs> I know. It's too much. Too much. Well, I'm so sorry, but I have to get going because I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. so tired. I'm so sorry. No, this is perfect. cut our conversation short. Thank um, you guys so much. No, this was so fun having you on. I, so like, fun. Truthfully, you are so passionate about this movie, and I love it. Yeah, it was. It really is. I realized... The first week of school, I'll say this last thing, my friend, our friend Aaron, that we had to do the whole, what's your favorite movie? And everybody said the most obscure thing they could. And I don't know what I said. I probably said like a French New Wave movie because that's what made me want to study film as like an adult. But our friend Aaron said Titanic and it's her favorite movie and it's kept, kept with her since she was, you know, a kid and watched it. And then I... That's how we became friends. I went up to her and I was like, you know what? I love Titanic and I also love Clueless. I think Clueless may be my favorite movie. And we started quoting it. So oh, that's so lovely. She's so cute. That's yeah. what's great about She's movies. They really so can cute. connect people. Um, yeah. And with that, please, yes. friends of the podcast, connect with us on any media outlet. I'm still getting... I'm not as good at... Instagram as Stefania is, but I am like, you are my aspiration. Um, and yeah, find us anywhere. We would love to have you on. And Stefania, where can they find you? You can find me on, tw- I'm starting to use Twitter again more. Uh, um, if you want to know my hot takes on, on the Riverdale finale, um, <laughs> And other things at Dear Stefania, um, Instagram O Stefania, uh, but that's private. It's only for VIPs. So if I don't know you, <laughs> <laughs> if I don't know you, I wish you did. <laughs> um, thanks so much, Huntington sisters. Always a pleasure. Always so I feel so energized and. 
purposeful and um, oh you're too kind that's the dream (laughs) that's the dream Uh, well thank you thank you listeners thank you to our producer Haley and we will see you next time